I have hired a lot of people over the years, uh, which means that I'd ha I've had to wade through countless resumes, resumes of job applicants. And maybe you've had to do that in your line of work, you know, wade through resumes. And you probably know if you've had to do that, there are some really strange things that people put on their resumes. And uh, I decided to go online this last week and look up resume bloopers. So here are, here are some of my favorites. Uh, one guy on his resume, he included a letter of reference from his mother. <laughs> Not sure he got the job. Uh, another job applicant listed her positive attributes as, and you, you got to listen closely to this, strong work ethic, attention to detail, team player, self-motivated, attention to detail. Yeah, some of you will get that on your way home from church today. So. One job applicant listed his experience as stalking, receiving, and shipping. I think I would hire a stalker. I don't think I'd hire a stalker. Obviously, a typo, uh, just like the woman who said her reason for leaving her previous job was maturity leave. <laughs> I, I, I've known some of those. And then the applicant who said that he's fluent in English and spinach. I don't know if he could speak other vegetables as well, but, or the person who said his career goal was a job on the information supper highway. Hmm. Other resume bloopers include someone who listed his references as Bill, Tom, and Eric, but I don't know their phone numbers. That's really helpful. Or someone who included her medical history. <laughs> Yikes. Someone who sent in a plastic foot with the note, I just want to get a foot in the door. That's not creative, that's creepy, right? right so, now, the reason I brought up this topic of job resumes is that today we're going to take a close look at the resume of Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to look at Jesus' qualifications for one very important job. More about that job in a moment. We're in the fourth week of a seven-part series. We're calling Picture Perfect, Images of Jesus in the Book of Hebrews. So if you brought a Bible, would you turn with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews, get the outline from your program. And today's image of Jesus that we're considering is Jesus as our high priest. And we're going to take a look at Jesus' qualifications for this role, Jesus' resume. But before we do that, I need to explain the importance of this role for our lives. Because my guess is that we rarely think in terms of our need for a high priest, right? And so if you don't think of yourself as being in need of a high priest, and I say, we're going to talk about Jesus as our high priest. It's, it's not particularly moving. But a high priest is some, someone we desperately need in our lives, and here's why. Uh, we have a broken relationship with God. Every one of us, we have a broken relationship with God. If you've been at Christ community for any length of time, you've heard me say this repeatedly. We have a natural bent to go our own way instead of God's way. God says, do this, and we do that. God says, don't do that, and that's exactly what we want to do. Happens every day, multiple times a day, in every one of our lives. You know, people have been rebelling against God since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, the original couple, were put in a, in a virtual paradise by God and told they could eat from any tree in this garden except that one. So what tree do you think they chose to eat from? That one. And unfortunately, when we defy the giver of life, the penalty is death. 
I mean, God warned Adam and Eve about that ahead of time. He said, the day you eat from that tree that I said not to eat from, you will surely die. But Adam and Eve defied God. Adam and Eve ate from that tree. And interestingly, they didn't die, at least not immediately. In fact, if you recall the story, God shows up in the garden. And what does God do for them? Recall? God makes garments for them. He makes garments, clothes out of animal skins, animals that he must have killed on their behalf. Now, many theologians mark this as the beginning of the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system works on the basis of substitution. Now, this is really, really important that you get this. This is a central theme in Scripture. In Old Testament times, God accepts the life of an animal in place of the life of a sinful, death-deserving human. Substitution worked for Adam and Eve. Many, many years later, God formalized this system of substitutionary atonement with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Now, you, you may recall the story, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and God gives him some moral imperatives, chisels them in stone, you know, among which are our Ten Commandments. And then God gives Moses instructions for what to do when people break those commandments. Okay, wh- what do you do when they disobey God? What do you do when they disconnect from the giver of life? What do you do when they deserve death? Not just physical death, but spiritual death, which means separation from God, and eternal death, which means separation from God forever and ever. What do you do? Sacrificial system. It was spelled out in detail at the top of Mount Sinai. Not only the kinds of sacrifices that should be offered as substitutes for death-deserving humans, but also the dudes who were supposed to offer these sacrifices on behalf of sinful people. These guys were called priests. Priests, and the major part of their job was to offer regular sacrifices for sinful people. And the head honcho of this group of priests was called the high priest. And once a year, the high priest would make a very, very special sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, that was its official name, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the inner sanctum of the worship center. Now, originally, the worship center was this large tent called the tabernacle. Uh, Years later, King Solomon built an amazing permanent structure called the temple. But in both the tabernacle and the temple, there was this inner sanctum, this inner room called the most holy place. Only the high priest could go in there. He could only go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, even if you don't know about the Ark of the Covenant from the Bible, you know about it from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Do you know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Okay, the stone tablets with God's commandments chiseled into them. And so the high priest would enter on the Day of Atonement carrying the blood of sacrificed animals, which he'd sprinkle on top of the Ark of the Covenant. This was a symbolic way of saying that even though God's people had broken the laws contained in the Ark of the Covenant, you know, God would forgive them, these death-deserving humans, because of the sacrifice of animals who had taken their place. Now, fast forward hundreds of years. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the high priest of everyone who surrenders their life to him. 
See, Jesus is now the one who makes atonement for our sins. Jesus is the one who approaches God on our behalf to save us from the physical, spiritual, eternal death we deserve. Jesus is our high priest. You know, without Jesus, we're dead in every sense of the word. Jesus as high priest is one of the most prominent images in the book of Hebrews. The, the writer spells out Jesus' unique qualifications for this role in great detail. So today we're going to take a look at Jesus' resume as high priest. Five of his qualifications. So if you're filling in your outline, here we go. Number one, what qualifies Jesus to be high priest? He is an empathetic mediator. Let me read to you some scripture from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to begin at the end of the chapter, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now stop right there for a moment because there was a, a, a great picture painted here by the writer of Hebrews that would have been understood by the Jewish Christ followers to whom he's writing. See, in Old Testament times, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would disappear. He he would go behind the curtain into the most holy place where only he would go, and you couldn't see him as he was making atonement for your sins. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus did the same thing, came to earth, died on the cross, raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven behind the curtain, so to speak, not into some small room called the most holy place where a smidgen of God's presence was, was sensed, but into God's eternal home, in, into the full orb presence of God. And he goes there to make atonement for our sins. Now, continue reading, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest, we're going to keep reading because in the original there's no break between chapters. Chapter divisions were added later. So verse 1 of chapter 5, every high priest, speaking now of Old Testament high priests, is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself, this Old Testament high priest, is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Now, stop there. The Old Testament high priest, before he could enter the Holy of Holies, the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, had to offer sacrifices for his own sins because he himself was a sinner. If you want to read about this, you could go back to the book of Exodus chapter 29. The very first high priest was Aaron, Moses' brother, and there was this very elaborate process of purification that he had to go through before he could go into the most holy place. Now, friends, I would imagine if we lived back then, there would be some comfort knowing that our high priest is a sinner just like us. See, there's, there's some comfort knowing that when you bring your sins to the high priest to make atonement, he doesn't look at you and say, you did what? <laughs> and you did this again? 
I mean, just last year, I was making this atonement for your gossip and your greed and your anger and your lust. And here you are again, and we got to go through. Now, there was no moral superiority on the part of the high priest. He would not embarrass you because of your sin. Why? Because he himself was a sinner who had to make sacrifice for his own sins before he could make sacrifice for others. But what about Jesus? According to the writer of Hebrews, look at the last four words of Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, he did not sin. So in contrast to the Old Testament high priest, Jesus never sinned, not once. So wouldn't that make Jesus somewhat intimidating as high priest? How do I know that Jesus is approachable? You hear what I'm saying? Let me use an analogy here. I've told you that this uh, past fall, Sue and I added a little porch onto the front of our house. And because we had to expand our concrete stoop, uh, we had to remove some bushes. And so we hired a a landscaper who specializes in transplanting of of, uh, uh, stuff. And we, we had to move stuff to other parts of the yard. Now, as he did so, he felt free to critique our landscaping. And so he was just full of observations. He said, you know, you put those two bushes too close together there. And those flowers, they should not be there. They should be on the other side of the house over over there. And this uh, particular bush, you pruned this like there was no tomorrow. In fact, he actually said about one of our bushes, it had been abused. (laughs) I said to Sue afterward, I thought he was going to call the DCFS on us. You know, abused bushes. Now, this guy really knows his stuff. He is really, really good. But I don't think I'm inviting him back into my yard anytime soon because I can't live up to his standards. Can't live up to his standards. Is that how we feel about Jesus, this high priest who never sinned? Is he going to be empathetic when we, we confess to him our struggles with sin? We'll go back to Hebrews 4, verse 15, the the verse that closes with the declaration of Jesus' sinlessness, and let me read the entire verse to you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Now, if you've got your own Bible with, with you, this is where you get to mark it up. Just circle that word, empathize. In fact, I'd put a few exclamation points next to it, a star or two. He's able to empathize with our struggles with sin. Now, this verse usually raises a couple of questions in people's minds with regard to Jesus' ability to empathize. Uh, First, how can the Bible say that Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are? Verse 15. Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are. Really? Was Jesus ever tempted to do 50 in a 35 zone? Like on what, his camel? Yeah. Was Jesus ever tempted to get nasty with his nagging wife? Oh, that's right, he didn't have a wife. Hmm. Was Jesus ever tempted to under, underpay his employees? Well, he didn't have employees. He was part of a two-man operation, a carpentry shop with his dad. Was Jesus ever tempted to look at porn? 
See, you see where I'm going with this? Jesus was not tempted in every specific way in which we might be tempted today, but that's not what the writer of Hebrews means here. The Bible is simply telling us that Jesus faced every general category, every general category of temptation that we face. Friends, we're never able to say, well, you know, just, Jesus just wouldn't understand the particular sin that I struggle with. Oh, yes, he would. He has been tempted in every way, generally speaking, just as we are. Now, the second question that people raise uh, regarding Jesus being tempted sounds more like an objection. You know, I've heard people say, well, if Jesus is both fully man and fully God, wouldn't he just hit the God power button when temptation came his way? I mean, certainly temptation is not as tempting to a guy who's got a, a divine nature. Actually, I want to suggest to you that temptation was even more tempting, even more difficult to resist for Jesus than it is for us. Now, why do I say that? Think about it for a moment. What is our most common method for dealing with temptation? Where do we go to get relief? Okay, as you're, you're tempted to do something, what is the easiest way out to get relief? What is it? Just give in, right? Just do it. Because until you give in, it's building up and building up and building up. Someone's annoying you, and you're tempted to be angry, to lash out, but you're under control, but they continue to annoy you, and the anger builds up and it builds up until finally you let them have it. And when you do, there is great relief. So we, we could say this about any temptation. You tempted to materialism? You want relief? Go shopping. Come back with a few bags of stuff you don't need. You, you tempted to lust? Well, you, you, you can masturbate. You could jump into bed with your girlfriend. You could, there's any number of things you can do to get relief. Okay, you tempted to diss someone because you've got a critical spirit? Well, just let it fly. Let it be your boss or your teacher or, you know, the quarterback of the Bears. Whomever you want to do, just let it, let it rip. You'll feel better. Now, 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 I use that, that word better in a qualified way. I mean better in the sense that you'll feel immediate relief from temptation. Temptation momentarily will be off your back. Now, with that in mind, let, let, let me remind you that Jesus never, 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 never gave in to temptation. Never. Jesus never got relief by just doing what the temptation urged him to do. Can you imagine that? We, we have a high priest who has experienced temptation at an infinitely more intense level than we ever will. And so he can empathize with our struggles. Which is why the writer of Hebrews encourages us. Look at that 16th verse. This is an awesome verse. He tells us to bring our weaknesses, our failures to God's throne where he says, we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, what are we waiting for? We need to do this every day. As we struggle with sin, as we struggle with temptation, we need to go to the throne of God where our high priest stands and receive mercy and find grace to help us. That's Jesus' first qualification as high priest. Uh, number two, he is a chosen representative. And it's important that a high priest be chosen. 
Let me continue reading. We left off at chapter 5, verse 3. Pick it up at verse 4. No one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, you don't choose to be high priest. God chooses you. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you're my son. Today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you were a little Jewish boy growing up in Old Testament times and somebody asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Okay, you would probably say the vocation of your dad. You know, I want to be a carpenter, a craftsman, just like my daddy is. Or I, I want to be a farmer. I want to be a fisherman, just like dad. You would not say, there were no little uh, Jewish boys running around saying, I'd like to be high priest someday. Because this wasn't a job that you aspired for. You, you had to be chosen, and God was the one who did the choosing. In fact, in Old Testament times, there are a number of occasions when people wanted to take this office by force, and God dealt with them rather severely. One of the guys named Korah, he was upset that Aaron was high priest, and he was not, and led a, a bit of a mutiny against Aaron. God said, uh, Korah, I want everybody to take two giant steps away from you. Now, how, how many of you know when God says, take two giant steps away from you, you're, you're in trouble? And Korah was in trouble. The earthquake came and swallowed him up and his family and his possessions, and that was the end of it. Now, who wants to be high priest? Okay, we'll let God make that selection. Uh, interestingly, in New Testament times, the method of selecting a high priest was once again up for grabs. In fact, in Jesus' day, the high priestly office was in the hands of a family that had bought control of it. They had actually paid cash for this job. But the writer of Hebrews points out that the high priest's job wasn't up for sale, that God was still in charge of the selection process, and that God had recently filled the office with his son. Look again at verse 5 of Hebrews 5. Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. This is a quote from the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 2, verse 7. Bible scholars believe it's a, a reference to that moment in time when the, the resurrected Jesus ascended to heaven, and as he took his throne beside the Father, God declared to all of heaven, this is my son, and I'm his dad. And then in the very next verse, Hebrews 5, verse 6, there's another Old Testament quote, this time from Psalm 110, verse 4, and he applies it to the same scene in heaven that God says to his newly enthroned son, he declares, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now you read that and you think, who in the world was Melchizedek? How many of you know who, who Melchizedek was? Okay, a few of you. You're worried I'm going to call on you, right? Okay, so who was Melchizedek? Well, interestingly, this is a guy whose story is only told in one chapter of the Bible. One place, Genesis 14. It's rather obscure. I mean, here's the background. It's during the, the days of Abraham, Israel's great patriarch, the, uh, the guy who started God's people, all right? And God had led Abraham and his extended family to the land of Canaan, a land that would later be known, hundreds of years later, it would be known as the promised land. But it's not yet the promised land, okay? So a Abraham settles in Canaan along with his extended family. And one day, 
his uh, nephew Lot, who's living in a village nearby, the village is attacked by enemy armies, and they capture Lot, and they carry off Lot and uh, most of his possessions as booty. So Abraham quickly pulls together a little army, gives chase, catches the enemy, the bad guys, by surprise, frees Lot and recaptures not only uh, Lot's material possessions, but all the booty that these raiding armies have been collecting from other villages. And as Abraham is making his way home, he runs into this guy named Melchizedek. Now, it's just sort of out of the blue, and Melchizedek, turns out, is a king of a local city called Salem. But the interesting thing about Melchizedek, he's not only a king, he's also a priest. Now, this is in the days way before Moses was given instructions about priests. So Melchizedek acts in a priestly role. In fact, Abraham gives to him a tenth, a tithe, the first indication of a tithe here in Scripture, long before the law was given, a tithe of all the booty. Much as in later years, people would bring their tithe to the church, so to speak, to the priest. And in return, Melchizedek blesses him, prays a blessing over him, just like a priest would do. Now, now, interestingly, even though this is the only place in Scripture we we read the story of Melchizedek, it becomes a rather popular story. And, And here's why. People are fascinated with this guy who's a king and a priest. So you don't put those two roles together. If you're a king, you're a king. You're not a priest. If you're a priest, you're a priest. You're not a king. And here is this guy we we come across, and he is a king priest. This is where we come back to Jesus. Okay, Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, people were longing for a savior. They were longing for a Messiah whose coming had been prophesied in Old Testament times. But here's the interesting thing about this expected Messiah. Historians tell us there was one group of people who expected the Messiah to be a king, a glorious king, like their great king David. But there was another group of people who expected the Messiah, the coming Savior, to be a great high priest, like Aaron, Moses' brother. So would the Messiah be a king or would he be a priest? Jesus came and fulfilled both roles. There's a lot behind these images that you come across in the book of Hebrews. Before I move on to the third qualification Jesus possessed as high priest, I just want to reiterate the gist of the second qualification, Jesus' chosenness. God chose Jesus to be high priest. Nobody else got the job. Nobody else would do. Now, there's something very interesting that God led me to meditate on as I I thought about Jesus' chosenness. Often we associate chosenness with popular acclaim. I mean, it's a good thing to be chosen, right? If you're chosen to be the first chair in your high school orchestra, that's a good thing. Okay, if you're chosen to be the the new CEO of your company, that's, that's an honor, if you're chosen, your house is chosen to be on the Christmas walk in, in town. That's a, that's a big deal. But, but on the other hand, if you're in the army and your commanding officer chooses you to lead the charge up the hill, to move in the face of enemy fire, oh, that's chosenness of a different kind, isn't it? That's Jesus' chosenness. You're my son. I'm choosing you. You're going to give your life on a cross for the sins of humanity. And Jesus says, count me in. I'm your man. Wow. 
That brings us to the third qualification for Jesus as high priest. He is obedient Savior. He's obedient Savior. Uh, let's keep on reading. Hebrews chapter 5, we let off at verse 6. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience. Got your own Bible? Circle the word there. That's the key word in this paragraph. Obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That's what he expects from us. Obedience. And he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's his obedience that qualified him for this role. Now, now, this part of the passage focuses on Jesus' obedience to the Heavenly Father. He was obedient with respect to his mission, even to the point of death on the cross. But this text also raises a couple of questions in our minds. Maybe you thought these questions as I, I was reading the passage to you. First question. I'll give you a little background to the question. According to verse 7, during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, he prayed fervently with loud cries and with tears. Now, now, we know that in general, during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, he made a practice of prayer. But Bible scholars feel that one particular occasion is in mind here, the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that time just before Jesus' arrest and later crucifixion when he prayed so earnestly? He sweat great drops of blood. And what was Jesus' prayer? You know, the, the gist of it was, Father, if you can save me from this, do it. But if not, you know, if, if I don't have to go to the cross, if there's some other way, take this cup from me, literal words. But your will be done. I'll do whatever. Now, what's interesting about that, you go back to Hebrews 5, verse 7, in the middle of the verse, it says that he cried out to the one who could save him from death. So, again, we're obviously talking about the Garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane prayer. But look at the very next line of Hebrews 5, verse 7. It says, and Jesus was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, here's the question that goes through my mind. I don't know if it went through yours as I was reading this. Jesus was heard? Jesus was heard. How can the writer of Hebrews say that Jesus was heard when he cried out to the Father, save me, and he wasn't saved from the cross? Jesus died. You know, the the answer to that question, of course, is that yes, Jesus did die in the short term. But we know the rest of the story. We know that God raised Jesus from the dead. We know that Jesus ultimately triumphed over death. So we know that God did hear, God did respond to Jesus' prayer. And friend, there there is a powerful lesson for us here with regard to obedience. You know, sometimes God asks us to do something very hard. And sometimes doing the hard thing leads us into painful, difficult circumstances. And so we do the obedient thing, and things get rough for us, and we pray, God, get me out of here. God, save me. And God does save us out of dire circumstances, eventually. But not always uh, immediately, right? 
I mean, so, sometimes obedience requires that we keep on doing the right thing, the God thing, even though God doesn't seem to be answering our prayer to make everything cool. You follow what I'm saying here? There is a price tag that often goes with obedience. You may be dating someone, and you're, you're starting to like him a lot, and he likes you. And then he makes it clear to you that he'd, he'd like a little more out of the relationship. He'd like a physical part to this relationship. And you very graciously explain to him that uh, you believe, according to the Bible, that God has reserved sex for a, a marriage commitment. And so what happens? Does he look at you and say, this is just the kind of woman I've been looking for? No, he, he drops you. You never hear from him again. And he starts dating somebody else who will give him what he wants. That's what sometimes happens, right? You're working for a boss who's over-demanding and he's asking all sorts of additional hours from you, especially on weekends, and you sit down with him and you say, hey, boss, I'm, I'm willing to work hard. I'm willing to give you occasional extra hours over time. However, I can't keep doing this on weekends because I have family values that I have to observe and a weekend is a time for me to gather with other Christ followers and, and worship. I, you know, I can't do this. And what's your reward? You find somebody else to do the job and you're in the unemployment line. Or, or let's say another example, let's say that you volunteer for one of our ministries, one of our community impact ministries, and you drive your car down to the Wayside Cross ministry in Aurora, kind of a rough neighborhood, and you go inside, you serve meals, you lead a Bible study, and you can't come out and someone's broken into your car, stolen some valuables of yours. Are you kidding me? Here I am, I'm being obedient, and this is what I get? So what do we do on those occasions? Do we keep on obeying even though obedience sometimes gets tough? Even though we sometimes pray, God, get me out of this. I'm obeying you. And God doesn't answer or doesn't seem to answer immediately. What do we learn from Jesus? We learn keep on obeying. Keep on obeying. Now here's the second question people ask about Jesus' obedience as described in this Hebrew 5 passage. Look at the middle of verse 8. It says that Jesus learned obedience. See that? Drop down to verse 9. Opening line says, Jesus was made perfect. Those are two weird expressions when applied to Jesus. He learned obedience. He was made perfect. What, wasn't Jesus always obedient? And why does the writer of Hebrews say he learned obedience? Wasn't Jesus always perfect? Then how can Hebrews say he was made perfect? Let me answer that question with an analogy. Okay, there's, there's a dad who has two sons. And one of those sons always learns obedience the hard way. You with me? Follow me here? Okay, so dad says, son, put your, your bike away in the garage. And the son doesn't obey and the bike sits out and the rain comes and the bike rusts and it's no good to him anymore. He learns to obey the hard way. The other son, however, is always obeying the father, always doing what the father tells him to do. The father says, mow the lawn, he mows the lawn. He says, paint the fence, he paints the fence. One job after another because he succeeds at everything he sets his hand to do in obedience to the father. He gets more and more and more responsibility. He learns obedience. Not that he had ever been disobedient, but he's learning obedience. This is Jesus. 
This is Jesus who always does what the Father tells him to do so that at the end of his earthly ministry, the Father could say, you've done it all. You've been made perfect, so to speak. Not that you were ever bad or disobedient, but you learned obedience along the way. So here's another life lesson about obedience from Jesus, our high priest, something he teaches us by example here, and that is that obedience is something we learn. Obedience is something we learn. And we, we learn obedience, friends, by doing the next thing that Jesus asks us to do. So you're reading your Bible today and you find something to apply to your life and you do it. You, you come to church and the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart as the message is being preached. This is something you need to do and you do it. And, and once you do what the Lord has asked you to do, you've passed the test, and guess what? You move on to the next test, and the next one, and the next one. See, obedience is not a, a switch that you flip on and off. Now I'll obey, now I won't obey, obey, don't obey. It's a muscle that gets stronger over time as you use it. See, the more you use this muscle, you want to do big things for God, you want to walk in obedience to God in the really big things of life, then practice obeying God in the little things of life. You know, I love the story that's told about John D. Rockefeller, you know, the multi-bazillionaire. And he, he was known for his charitable giving. He gave away millions of dollars. And somebody asked him on one occasion, how can you tithe? Because he was a church-going person who believed that God should get the first 10% of his income. And they asked him, how could you tithe on a million dollars? It's a lot of money to give away. And his response was, I could never tithe on a million dollars unless I had tithed on my first dollar. See, you learn, what is God asking you to do? You do it and you learn obedience over time as your obedience muscle gets strengthened. That's what our high priest teaches us. He was qualified for the role because of his obedience. Here's a, a fourth qualification. He is a permanent intercessor. Now, there's a lot about Jesus' high priestly role throughout these chapters, but I'm going to flip ahead to chapter 7, and we're going to pick up another passage that describes him as high priest. End of chapter 7, verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests, the writer's talking about Old Testament high priests, since death pre prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The writer of Hebrews in these verses compares the permanence, the permanence of Jesus as our high priest with the, the transitory, the fleeting lives of the Old Testament high priests. You know, the very first high priest, as we've already learned, was Moses' brother Aaron. And Aaron served as the people's high priest all through their years, the 40 years of wandering in the desert. God had said, you're not going into the promised land because you disobeyed me. So you're going to wander around in the desert. And Aaron, he was the guy, he was the high priest during those years. But the end of the 40 years came, the time, the moment for entering the promised land. And Moses said to Aaron, Aaron, take your son Eleazar, we're going to the top of Mount Hor. And they went up to the top of Mount Hor, and Aaron, a very old man at this time, died. And Moses took his garments, his high priestly garments, and he 
put them on his son, Eleazar. And Eleazar came down from the mountain, the new high priest. And he served during the next period of time when God's people entered the promised land and settled it. And then at the end of that period, he died and the garments were passed on to his son, Phineas. And on and on it went, one high priest after another, until the time of Josephus, a historian in the first century, who, who wrote that since the days of Aaron until the first century, there had been 83 high priests. 83 high priests. And just about the time a high priest hit his stride, just about the time he started doing his job well, just about the time he got to know the people he was serving, he passed away. Now, this may sound like a trite comparison, but, but have you ever had a, a really, really great service provider of some sort? You know, a doctor, insurance agent, auto mechanic. And, and, and then they retired and moved to Florida. Or, or, or worse, they passed away and you were left with this huge hole to fill. I, I was thinking about that the other day because I had a plumbing problem. And uh, I've, I've had the same plumber for 30 years, a good friend of mine, a guy named Dave. In fact, in the, in the early days, we had this little starter house for a five-year period. And I think over those five years, Dave replaced every single faucet, every foot of lead pipe in that ancient house. You know, and then we moved to the house we're currently in. We've been there for 25 years. Every time a garbage disposal goes down, Dave's there. Every time a drain clogs, the time that we wanted to, to put an extra bathroom in our basement, it was Dave, Dave, Dave. And now he's decided to retire. How could he do that to me? <laughs> you know, I just hate the thought of starting with a new guy. And, and that's just my plumber. By the way, I expect to get lots of business cards from plumbers this week. So, <laughs> but, but what about my high priest? What about the guy responsible for keeping my relationship with God up and running? What about the guy who sees to it that my sins are paid for so that I stay connected to a holy God? What about the guy who brings my needs daily before God's throne? I want somebody who's always going to be there, doesn't take vacation breaks, doesn't retire. The writer of Hebrews says, oh, you're talking about Jesus. Again, look at verse chapter 7, last line of verse 24, Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. You drop down to the last line of verse 25. He always lives. He always lives to intercede for us. Did you know that in Old Testament times, part of the garment that the high priest wore into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement was a, a breastplate. And on the breastplate, were 12 precious gems, 12 stones, and on each stone was a name of one of the tribes of Israel. So when he, he went into the most holy place to make atonement for people, he was carrying, as it were, the names of the people over his heart. You see where I'm going with this? You know, I've got a high priest who stands in heaven on my behalf, and he carries my name on his heart. And if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, that's true of you. Your high priest has your name on his heart. And today, because he lives forever and has a permanent high priesthood, he's making intercession for you. 
This is something we're going to celebrate in just a moment here as we take communion together. Now, there is a, uh, there's a fifth and final qualification that Jesus brings to the high priestly role. We're not going to get to it today, but that's intentional. So you see there's a, a fifth point on your outline, and that fifth qualification is actually treated as an image of its own in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to look at it next week, focus on it. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Old Testament high priests, they would bring into the most holy place the blood of goats and bulls and so on. But Jesus enters the presence of God with his own blood, which he shed on the cross for us. He is the perfect sacrifice. His blood is of infinite worth. And if you've put your hope and your trust in him, he has washed you with that blood. And I invite you to take part in communion with the rest of us. Let me pray. Lord God, give us an imagination so that we can picture Jesus, our high priest, before your throne on our behalf, interceding. For those of us who've put our hope, our trust in him, he's saying, I've shed my blood for that person. They're forgiven. It's been my life for theirs. And God, as we uh, take part in communion, as we hold in our hands the bread, the cup that symbolized the body of Jesus hung on the cross, the blood of Christ shed for us. Help us to do it with the appropriate solemnity. Help us to do it, God, with a sense of the great price that was paid on our behalf. Help us to do it with gladness of heart that our high priest currently lives, having laid down his life. He lives and reigns and serves us in heaven unceasingly. We pray in his holy name. Amen.